I'd like to open my remarks today by reading for you a piece of scripture from Acts chapter 16. Probably a familiar story to you. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas... Oh, excuse me, you know what I'm supposed to do? If there's any children here right now, I'm supposed to release you back to the uh, youth room. You can go back there or down the hall to the preschool department. Sorry, I missed that. My apologies. And anybody else that wants to go. So you're well. Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves, we're all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Before coming to Clarence, Deb and I planted a new church in Painted Post, New York. Our first Sunday, we met in a conference room in the Holiday Inn with six adults and six kids. It was going to be tough. But we simply taught the Scriptures and tried to reach out with the love of Christ the best we knew how. And after a while, about 60 people were attending. Then a sizable group of people from a neighboring church in town started attending ours. It was kind of weird. That church was having big issues, and rather than fight, this group decided to leave. And it was a very ugly situation. I was young. I didn't know what to do. I called and asked for help. I learned that I should encourage them to go back to their church and work things out. Love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, and on we go. But after a while, it was very clear that they could not resolve their differences. They continued to attend our church. Of course, we welcomed them, but we soon realized that our view of Bible doctrine was different than theirs. One morning in our brand new church building at that time, we had a baptism, and this group of people were shocked. They 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 were immediately filled with questions, and some thought that we misinterpreted the Scriptures, and others, though they had been attending church for a long time, had never actually witnessed a baptism. And to their credit, though, they agreed to search the Scriptures with an open heart and let God's Word do the deciding for them. And eventually, about 30 of those good people studied with us and were baptized into Christ. And we were glad to welcome them into the church family. 
Ephesians 4, 5 tells us there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, right? The book of Acts gives us eight stories of people who left their old lives and started following Christ. Every story includes baptism. It seems pretty simple, but it's not simple. It's because man changes things. It wasn't long before they started changing things from the Bible. The changes were only slight at first, but soon it became traditions and doctrines that were introduced into the church. About 160 A.D., a leader by the name of Justin said, anyone who accepts baptism must feel the power in him to overcome himself. All those who confess this are led to prayer. Fasting, they ask God's forgiveness for their past sins. We also pray and fast with them. Then we lead them to a place where there is water, and they now take a bath in the water and are born again. That sounds very good, doesn't it? Except they added just a little bit to the teachings of Scripture. But because of false teaching and pagan backgrounds, the early believers wanted to make sure people knew what they were doing before they actually were dunked in the water. So they designed some very specific questions for the candidates. That's only right. Who do you think Jesus is? The, the questions tested their belief in the person of Jesus. That's good, but that led to a formula that had to be said with exact words before a baptism could take place. If you didn't say those exact words, then the baptism wasn't legitimate. Some taught that the person needed to be anointed with oil before baptism. Later it was decided that only bishops and deacons could do the baptism. And then it could only be done on Easter or 50 days after Easter. Then it could only be done in water that was blessed. In 1311 A.D. there was a council of the churches. They legalized sprinkling as a substitute for immersion. And just a little later, the baptism, the sprinkling of babies became universal practice of the church. You can see how little by little the church got away from the original meaning and purpose of baptism. Eventually, in around the, in the 1500s, there was a very influential teacher by the name of Zwingli who changed the understanding of and doctrine of baptism to say that baptism is a public testimony and witness that a person's already been saved and now he's becoming part of the church of God. An outward expression is what they say of an inward decision. This new teaching was then promoted by John Calvin. It's become accepted by almost every denominational church today. And instead of a fishing pond in the church, the early church built mourner's benches or an altar. A lot of times people come to our church and say, why don't we have an altar call? Um, uh, Well, where do you find an altar in the New Testament? In the New Testament, we're taught to repent and be baptized. In In the 1800s, there was a preacher from Kentucky, a pioneer preacher named Raccoon John Smith. What a great name, huh? Raccoon John he was discussing the subject of baptism with a ministering, with a minister from a non-baptizing church. And the man said, Smith, there's no difference between our mourner's bench and your baptism. They both accomplish the same thing. 
And Smith replied, there's, there's one difference, sir. Baptism came from the Scriptures and your mourner's bench came from the sawmill. Uh, that's tough truth. In this room today, we have people from a variety of backgrounds. Many different opinions. Some were sprinkled as babies. Some were baptized for membership into a church. Some prayed the sinner's prayer, but were never baptized. Some have never been taught or or challenged to be baptized. And so in their confusion, of course, they say, I don't know what to do, so they do nothing. I get it. Once I was teaching the book of Acts on a Sunday morning to a high school class here in the church building, we came to Acts 2 and I said, hey man, there's 3,000 people baptized on the same day. Wouldn't that have been something? And we talked about that. And I just simply ask at the end of class, have you done that? Have you done that? And that resulted in a visit with a high school girl and her whole family later that week. She wanted to know more about it, wanted her parents to hear about it. I worked through the conversion stories and asked them if it made sense to them. Yes, it did. I said, have you been baptized? No, we haven't. Uh, These were godly parents. I mean, they loved the Bible. They went to church every Sunday in town, another church. And I was kind of scratching my head, saying, how is it you're so committed to Christ, yet you haven't ever been baptized? And the dad said, I always wanted to, but I've never been part of a church that taught it. And so I said, what's holding you back? Nothing. And so they were eager to follow the clear and simple Bible instructions on the subject. And you know what? That girl became my daughter-in-law. How about that? Baptism was not meant to divide people or cause arguments among people. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that baptism is an elementary teaching of the faith. It's simple. Uh, I would simply ask you to humbly approach the Bible now and let it speak for itself, and then you, you make up your own mind whatever you want to do. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of Bible verses at you in the next little bit. I encourage you to check the Scriptures out for yourself. Don't believe me. Don't believe a word I say. Let the Word of God do the teaching. I'm just going to quickly present to you the practice of baptism and the purpose of baptism and then some problems I've encountered with baptism. Hope it makes sense to you. First, the practice. It was Jesus in His last words who said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The disciples took Him at His word, taught about Christ, And just 10 days after Jesus went up to heaven, over 3,000 people understood the cross, the resurrection, and forgiveness was available in Christ. And 3,000 people accepted that message and were baptized. Chapter 2 of Acts. Then we have a little law because of persecution and so forth, but we find Peter in the land of Samaria... And as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, in Samaria, that forbidden place where people avoided going. Later in Acts 8, 
Philip is speaking with a government worker in Ethiopia. Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along, this guy from Ethiopia says, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Then both Philip and the man went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Pretty clear. That text gives us the clearest picture of how baptism was performed. The word baptized means to dip or to submerge. To the Greek speakers in the New Testament days, baptism only had one meaning. That just means to plunge under. And so that's the way it was done. We get to Acts chapter 9, probably the most familiar of the conversion stories in the book of Acts. The record tells us that after a conversation with a very reluctant man by the name of Ananias, Saul at that time got up and was baptized. Acts 10 tells us the baptism of a an outsider by the name of Cornelius, the first family completely outside Jewish heritage. And in a rare event, the Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his family prior to the baptism. And Peter saw that and said, Hey, look at that. Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? And so he ordered they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Each one of these stories should cause you to take a close look because it's amazing the variety of people uh, that are baptized, who hear this and are baptized. A lady named Lydia lived in Philippi, and after hearing Paul speak in Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. She and the members of her household were baptized. It's just a matter of fact, it's an elementary teaching. We just move on from there. In the same city of Philippi, a corrections officer I wrote about, or read about just a few minutes ago, he and his entire family were baptized in the middle of the night. And I left out a whole bunch of that story in the most crazy of circumstances. Can you imagine what a story that is? But we have to move on. In Acts chapter 19, Paul met a group of guys from the city of Ephesus. They loved God and were already baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist. But Paul corrected their information about Jesus and His promises. And the Bible says on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. That's eight conversion stories in the book of Acts, the history of the early church. Professor F.F. Bruce states, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is not entertained in the New Testament. It just it just doesn't happen. It just is done, and we just move on with life. Baptism is never seen as a symbol to be done later or not at all. It's, it's always tied to belief and conversion. And so from these eight conversion stories, I hope that you can clearly see that it was a thing. It was the thing. It was the way to get in. It was a big thing. That's the practice of baptism. Let's talk just briefly about the purpose of baptism. The book of Acts tells that baptisms were done. The letters to the churches explain why it was done, why it's so important. Sin creates two problems for us. Sin makes us guilty and it makes us sick. And Nobody needed to tell Adam and Eve that they were guilty. They already knew it. And their relationship with God was forever damaged. They couldn't correct it. They had no cure for it. They just knew they were in big trouble. But baptism provides this double cure. It fixes what ails us. 
When the Bible says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. It's for you and your children and for all those who are far off. It's for everybody. Forgiveness erases your guilt. The Holy Spirit gives you a fresh new start and a new power to live. Somebody might say, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? At what point did it happen in your life? Was it when you prayed to receive Christ or when you went forward at some meeting? Did it happen when you were convicted by a powerful song or when you felt those goosebumps going up and down your back? The Bible says it happens at baptism. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only God can wipe out our past and give us a fresh start. It's the double cure, exactly what we need. That's what the Lord's provided for our sick souls. Uh, There are two more things that happen to us in baptism that are just outstanding. Uh, Each should take more time than I'm giving it. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. You're buried with Him. You're raised with Him. Uh, There's nothing magical about the water in our baptistry. It's just water from the tap. That's what it is. It's not holy water. It doesn't have a whole bunch of chlorine in it. It's It's just water, okay? Just water. And there's nothing special about the person who baptizes you. Anybody can baptize you. And there's nothing special about the words that are spoken. You're baptized into Christ. But God, beyond my ability to explain to you, God meets you in the water and does heart surgery on you. We are united with Christ in His death and His resurrection And the result is forgiveness and a fresh start with the Holy Spirit coming to live inside you. And if you would like a deeper explanation for it, I'm omitting Romans chapter 6 that goes deeper into this whole subject. In Acts 22.16, this idea is supported as Paul retold the story of his own baptism. He said he he was listening to Ananias tell the story. Ananias said, Paul... Saul at that time. Saul, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. How do you get rid of those sins? When does it happen? Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us by the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's almost Acts 2.38 said slightly differently. This washing and renewal is accomplished when a person repents. And is baptized. There's there's plenty more. Um, I try to list some of them for you. First Peter three twenty one says this water symbolizes baptism that now also saves you. You'd have to wrestle with that one quite a bit. Mark sixteen sixteen. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. I put those out there because two times the word saved is connected to baptism. I didn't put that in there. I didn't edit it to make it fit my teaching. That's just what it says. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. When did that happen? When did you put Him on? When did you start following Him? 
So the question is, when were you saved? When did you put on Christ? When were you united with Him in His death and His resurrection? When did that happen? When were your sins washed away? When did you receive the Holy Spirit? Listen, I will be the first person in the room to say that you can't find the whole will of God in one verse. I know you can't. You've got to take the Bible as a whole, and read it, and glean its meaning. There are specific verses on the subject of baptism, but I try to give you the context for each one. The examples are in Acts. The explanation are in the letters. And it seems clear that God has tied many great promises to baptism. And it becomes this time in your life, this historic event that always stands out in your memory. It's, it's an event that you can return to when you have doubts about, was did that really work for me? Am I saved? Am I forgiven? And you don't have to torture yourself wondering, At one point, did you have enough faith? Was your faith strong enough to accept Christ? Or was our repentance repentance, uh, sincere enough to make make a difference? It's not about you. It's what God does for you. It's based on God's power and the truth of His promises. Just as surely as we can remember our our baptism, we can be sure God is keeping His promise to us. Okay, So we we looked at the practice of baptism, the purpose of baptism. Here's a few problems associated with baptism. I'm trying to head you off at the past because I know probably in a group this size there's going to be people who say, now wait just a minute. I've heard a bunch of those. I'm going to try to give you some right now. Here's the first one. What about people who believe in Jesus but were never baptized? Were you thinking that? I'm trying to read your mind. I've thought of that too. In her late 60s, my grandma asked me to baptize her the next time I came home from college. But before I returned home from college, she suddenly died of a heart attack. She was a godly woman, a church-going woman. She loved the Lord. She loved people. What will happen to her? Number one, I am not God. You probably already realized that. I'm not God. God will decide these things. But I've wrestled with this question for many years. Maybe you have too. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We know that for sure. And I believe God can save anybody He wants to save because He's God. And I know that there's unbaptized people in heaven because they're saints from the Old Testament, like Abraham and David, that are there, right? They lived and died before the cross. So here's my thought. If God chooses to save the unbaptized people, He can do that. But He would be doing something very different from the clear teachings of Scripture. That's my honest answer on that. Do we just ignore The last words of Jesus who said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we ignore that? I think the better question is, why would you ignore this God-given plan to unite with Jesus in His death and have your sins forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit? Why would you ignore that? Don't worry about 
Dead people, you're alive. Worry about you and answer that question. Okay, here's a second question that comes up a lot. What about important scriptures that don't say anything about baptism? One of the best known is Romans 10 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no mention of baptism in Romans 10.10. What about that? Yes, you're absolutely right. Glad you reminded me of that. Remember, one verse does not contain the whole will of God. Let's take the whole picture. I believe and practice Romans 10.10. I say it often when I baptize people. I try to quote that because it is true and right. But Romans 10 assumes that you have read the preceding nine chapters of Romans before you got to Romans 10, including Romans chapter 6 that gives strong teaching of uniting with Jesus in His death and His resurrection is pictured in baptism. So I'm good with Romans 10 if you'll go back and read Romans 6. We've looked at eight conversion stories in Acts. We don't see people praying to receive Christ. We do see plenty of people repenting and being baptized. I think that you could be honest and agree with that. Here's another one. What about Romans 2, 8, and 9? It says, we're saved by faith, not by works. What about that? Good point. I would quote Martin Luther here, who struggled with this text, and said, yes, it is true that our works are of no use for salvation. Baptism, however, is not our work, but God's. The saving work is done by God. It's, it's not by works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. In baptism, the work is done to you. You don't do the work. You humble yourself. You surrender your life. You submit. You repent. You obey. And God takes it from there. He does the real work on the cross and in your heart. Here's a question that a lot of times comes up. Okay, so what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, yet Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. True enough. Here's the deal. Before I die, I can give you anything I want. I can give you my great collection of Cleveland Indian memorabilia. I can give that to anybody I want. And I can give you some of my chickens if I want to. I can give you some of the tools in my garage if we can find them. I can give them to you. But after I die, my will, my written will, right? That tells my wishes from there. You'd have to go through Deb to get my Cleveland stuff. She'd probably be happy to give it to you. Um, When Jesus was alive, you know, as you read His life, He granted forgiveness to many people, right? He did. But after He went to heaven, the apostles never granted forgiveness to anyone unless it was connected with the blood of Christ and the waters of baptism. I'd ask you to read it for yourself and check it out. Now here's a really tough one. What about my parents who grew up in a different tradition than I did? Won't I be condemning them if I get baptized? That's a tough one for sure. But that puts you in the same category as every believer in the New Testament. People like Paul and Cornelius and Lydia. Your case is no different than theirs. So let's play suppose. 
Suppose your dad ran a meat market all of his life. Then he died and he passed the store on to you. And as the business changed hands, all the legal things were done, the Bureau of Weights and Measurements came out to inspect the scales. And they reported to you that the scales have been off by one ounce. People have been paying for a pound of turkey or bologna. They're only getting 15 ounces. What to do? Your dad didn't know. Thought he was doing right. But now you have new information. You're going to keep doing business as usual, or are you going to respond to this new information? Here's one. What if I was baptized as a baby? Again, I would say uh, your mom and dad were doing the best thing they knew for you at that time. I respect them for that. I'm grateful for that. I know they wanted you to grow up to be a Christian because of their intentions. So they were doing the best they knew how. But the truth is this, you guys. This is straight truth. Infant baptism wasn't a thing until around 1300 A.D. The subject is not mentioned in the Bible because baptism was for people who were able to believe and repent of their sin. I know that sometimes parents are in a rush to get their children baptized. Again, I would ask you, humbly ask you to look at the Scriptures Babies have no sin to repent of. They're not capable of repenting. They're not capable of believing. It's much like the ability to vote or the ability to get drafted into the army or the military or to get your driver's license. Yeah, someday someday that teaching will apply to you for sure. But... Not right now. God's got you. I think the men in Acts 19 probably give the greatest example for me and hopefully for you. Remember, they had only known John's baptism and they thought they were good. Right? They obeyed as much as they knew up to that point in their life. But when the teaching of Jesus came to them, in their humility, they immediately realized the urgency and the greatness of the promises connected of being united with Christ in baptism. And they did not argue about it. They did not try to justify themselves. They did not say, no, John's baptism is good enough for me. No. They didn't want to miss out on the great promises, the great benefits of being forgiven and having the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, perhaps your mind is spinning with all these Bible verses that have come flying out of my mouth today towards you. Joy, I can invite you guys to come back up. There's, I know there's probably a lot to think about, and I know this is probably new teaching to some of you. And 
I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are resisting right now saying, man, I'm never coming back to this place again. I don't like it. I didn't know that about this church, and I didn't know that's how you stood on this. And I assure you that uh, I stand before you trying to give you the full counsel of God. You don't have to do anything to please me, not one thing. And you do not have to believe one word I say. I would just ask you to look at the Word of God, see what it says, approach it with a humble heart and say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you tell me. And let the Word of God decide from there. But I would expect there's some here today who would say, gosh, I never knew that before. I need to get that done right now. And you could be like the guy from Acts 16 who said, hey, here's water. What stops me from being baptized today? And that could be you. And so you could be like Paul who heard these words from Ananias. Get up. Be baptized. And wash away your sins calling on His name. If that is you today, I'd encourage you to come down as we sing this song. I'd be happy to meet with you, talk with you, go over it again. We can talk about it. We can examine the Scriptures again if it's necessary until you have a clear conscience. Would you stand with me, please? And let's join together in this song.